Good morning. Today we're starting a new series in the book of Judges. Before we do, I want to tell you about another book really quick. I recently picked one up called The Revolt of the Public. I came across it a number of weeks ago from a tweet by Ross Douthat. He's a conservative Catholic columnist, and he was commenting on the surprising victory of Javier Malay in Argentina back in November. And Douthat said that Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public, to him, offered the best explanation for why we're seeing the changes around the globe that we are. Why we're seeing this growing distrust and skepticism of incumbent authority. This growing referendum on ruling elites. This rising voice of the common man. And the role of technology and media in between. And for Gurry, in 2011, the world changed. In 2011, it was the year of the Arab Spring. If you don't remember the Arab Spring, let me just describe it in a sentence. The Arab Spring was when we saw a Google employee named Wael Ghanim, who was living in Dubai, create a Facebook group to organize protests in Egypt that would eventually topple the 30-year totalitarian reign of Hosni Mubarak and the entire Egyptian ruling class. And Guri says that event sent shockwaves, not just in the Arab world, but around the whole globe. Throughout the rest of the year, there were anti-government protests across the world. We even saw it here in the U.S. You might remember it. It was the Occupy Wall Street movement. It was a distant cousin of the Arab Spring. I try to remember back that far, and I remember thinking, at first, it started off kind of cool. Like, okay, protesting a system that's rigged against the common man? I'm here for that. Let's see what happens. But then if you also remember, it got really weird really fast. And eventually, the protests looked like tent cities on Skid Row. And the whole thing eventually fell apart. And why is that? Why did it fail? And why were the other movements around the world unable to capture that magic and that change that we saw in Egypt? And Gary answers that question by kind of narrowing down on the seeds of the Occupy movement, which actually began in Spain shortly after the Arab Spring. And he looks at the protesters in Spain and how they looked very similar to the organizers in Egypt. They were young adults, professional, educated, and middle class. But in Spain, things fell apart. And his argument's very complex, as you would imagine, but he essentially gives two main reasons for why it fell apart. He says the first is that the protesters were ignorant of their own story, and they actually disregarded their own history. Case in point being that they were protesting a democratic government that had increased their GDP by multiple X's over previous decades, had created and provided them higher education, created a middle class, and allowed them to have enough means and enough wealth to own the very cell phone that they were using to organize their protests. 
And he says they were ignorant of their own story. And so they didn't really get the support that they wanted because the generation that came before them came from nothing. And they saw their lives changed. And so in the end, they disregarded their own history and their own story, and all of their discontent was really, in the end, just disconnected. But more importantly, he says, secondly, they organized based on what they were against. They organized based on what they were against, and they didn't actually know what they were for. They were actually, or they were initially galvanized by what they were against, but once they got some media attention and someone put a microphone in their face, they couldn't actually articulate a vision of what they were really for. They didn't have an alternative. And so in the end, it fell apart because they were only unified by negation, not a real, actual, shared mission. And so all that was left was nihilism. They couldn't find any underlying meaning. And this lack of mission caused them to crumble from within due to the power struggles and the infighting amongst themselves. And it was actually a really insightful book. And for me, it showed how vital having a strong sense of mission and vision truly is. And how without it, infighting and dissolution are going to fill that space. It is not enough to say what we are against. It was also insightful because it provided a way for me to think and see the struggles in the church in our own time and place. When you look around broadly, do we not see a church struggling to find her identity? We see a church that's forgotten her past and where she came from and really has no value for it because now everything has to be new and novel. And since she's forgotten her past, it doesn't really have a vision for the future. It doesn't have something to work towards. And so to keep ourselves from getting bored, spectacle just replaces the spiritual. We see a church that's absolutely vocal about everything that it's against, yet it struggles to articulate what it's really for. And so then infighting and war break out on Twitter threads and comment sections. And there's no sense of shared mission. And togetherness has been replaced by tribalism. But it's also made me reflect on what about us? It's easy to point the finger. There's plenty to point the finger at out there. But what about us? What about our church? Why are we here? What are we really about? Most importantly, is our mission actually God's mission? And later this year, we're going to roll out an updated mission statement and core values for our church. And the reason we're going to do it later this year is because we actually want to take it slow. Over the next few months, we want to preach into these things and to lay the groundwork. And so today, we're going to start a new series in the book of Judges. And why Judges? Because Judges speaks about these very things. Judges is a warning. 
It shows us what happens when God's people lay aside God's mission. They disregard their story. They disregard their past. They forget what they're supposed to do. And by the end of the book, infighting and civil war has broken out as Israel turns on one another and kills each other. Judges shows us exactly what happens when God's people lay aside God's mission. It's a warning. But more importantly, Judges comes close. I know it seems like an ancient book that doesn't have much to do with our modern time, but Judges comes really, really close, and it challenges us in all of the ways that we disconnect God's mission from our own personal lives. How we can think of God's mission is out there, somewhere, far, far away. And so we can think, I, I engage in God's mission whenever I go to India, but not when I step inside my house. And Judges challenges us and tells us a different story. It comes close and it asks you, what is the mission and purpose of your home? What is the mission and purpose of your marriage? What is the mission and purpose of your parenting? What is the mission and the purpose of you as a person? What are you really committed to? What is your life really about? Because if we don't care about what God wants to do in our home, then why would we care about what God wants to do in our world? So as we begin Judges this morning, we have to set the stage. We pick the story up right in the middle. And Judges actually begins on a high note. Because when Moses died, Joshua assumed leadership of Israel and he leads them out of the wilderness and he leads them into the promised land. But when they get there, they hadn't arrived yet. In fact, the real work was yet to begin. The real work was only getting started. Because when they were in the wilderness, God gave them a mission. A very clear mission. He said, when you come into the promised land, you are to drive out the Canaanites. Take back what's mine. You're to drive them out city by city, village by village, and take possession of it and tear down all of their altars. And Israel was intended to be an instrument of God's judgment on the Canaanites and to purify the land and to take possession of it. And as they come into the promised land, they just cross the Jordan, God comes down. And he meets Joshua. And he tells Joshua to lead the people in this mission that God had given them. And if he does, that God would be with Joshua every step of the way. Because this is God's mission. And he invites Joshua to lead the people to participate in it and what God was doing. And in Joshua's lifetime, 31 kings stood before Joshua and 31 kings fell. Joshua was untouchable. It's legendary status. He led the people in victory after victory, but even at the end of his life, as he's about to die, the work wasn't done yet. The work wasn't finished, and so Joshua gathers the people together together. 
He gathers them together and he divides up the promised land among the tribes of Israel, giving each tribe their home. And then he says, the mission that God gave us is not over yet. The mission is not yet accomplished. Remember the past. Remember God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Remember what God did to the Egyptians to rescue us from the house of slavery and to give us this home. And remember the mission that God gave to us and go home and fulfill God's mission in your time and in your place. And then Joshua ends his words, his final words, with something really, really important. He says, so all of that comes down to a question. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you hear it? It's really subtle. He connects the mission of God with the mission of their home. Because they are no different. And Joshua dies and then Judges begins. And at first they're victorious. Judah and Moses' descendants continued to drive out the Canaanites, but all of the other tribes, not so much. They went home, they lived among the Canaanites, and they laid God's mission to the side. And eventually, the angel of the Lord comes down and he says, You haven't obeyed my voice. You haven't listened to me. You've made covenants with the Canaanites. You didn't break down their altars. Therefore, I will not drive them out before you. They will become a thorn in your side, and their gods will trap you. And then the angel ascends. The people weep. And then a downward spiral of moral and spiritual decay begins that will last for 400 years. 400 years. And Judges 2 answers the question, what happened? What happened? It answers the question, what caused the people to lay aside God's mission so quickly? And just to warn you, Judges 2 comes out swinging. Judges 2 hits hard. Because it shows us how things fell apart brick by brick. When God's people laid aside God's mission. And so remember that Joshua died, when Joshua died, or just before he died, he divided up the promised land among the people. And he sent them home to carry out God's mission in their time and place, but they never did. They lived among the Canaanites. They laid God's mission to the side. Why? They laid it aside for the same reason we lay it aside. Comfort. Comfort. There is nothing that sandbags our commitment to God's mission like the smothering weight of our own comfort. They went home and thought, finally, I have my own land and my own home. Now I finally got my own four-bed, three-bath in the suburbs of Canaan. Now I have what I really want. You know, and really, when I look around, haven't we already conquered this place enough? 
Is there really all that much left to do? Sure, there's a a few Canaanites left, but we've already conquered this place. So I'll just show up for worship on the Sabbath. I'll give my tithes, but my real mission is now my home, my career, my lawn, my comfort. Israel went home, and they did not want to be a consecrated people. They wanted to be a comfortable people. And the first domino that fell was when comfort became more important than consecration. I think that reads us like a book. If we're honest, how easy is it for us to do the exact same thing? We can lay aside God's mission and our time and place because we look around and think, this is Rockwall. Look at all the churches on all the corners. What really is there left to do? Hasn't Christianity already conquered here? So all that's left is just finding a church that fits my preferences and my priorities and making it a part of the life that I want for myself. But otherwise, here where I live, the mission is complete. Mission accomplished. And I can focus on other things. And so we go home. And we do not live as a consecrated people. We live as a comfortable people with no sense of urgency or sense of mission or purpose. And yet our lives are just filled with all sorts of busyness. And that busyness haunts you in the back of your mind and says, no matter how hard you work, you're never going to be at home here. You don't belong. And Judges 2 takes us even deeper. And it helps you see, it gives you a way of seeing if comfort has become your number one priority. I want you to think about this. Do you find yourself in a constant back and forth in your relationship with God? Where it feels like this endless cycle of up and down, stopping and starting, it's hot, it's cold, it's on again, it's off again. And it doesn't feel alive. It just ultimately feels artificial. Well, if you look at verses 16 and 19, it describes this cycle of Israel's downward spiral. And here's the cycle. Bad things would happen to Israel Israel would cry out to God. God would be merciful and deliver them. Then when things were back to normal, Israel returns to pursuing her own comfort and disregarding the Lord. Then bad things happen to Israel. And the cycle starts all over again. And why is that a downward spiral? Because at its core, it was about comfort. They only turned to God when life got hard. But once it passed, they went right back to old ways, old patterns, old rhythms, and they gave no thought to God until things got hard again. Their ultimate desire was that they just wanted God to make Israel comfy again. They didn't want any suffering, any hardship. They were only going to go to God when life got difficult. God, restore my comfort. 
the relationship with God was about what they wanted him to do. It was not about anything that God wanted them to do. So maybe the reason it feels like your relationship with God is artificial is because you're trapped in the same cycle. That cycle of life gets hard. God help me. God, where are you? And then the season or situation passes. And then it's back to life as it was before. Not thinking about God. And so life gets hard again. And where you're turning to God is really just about comfort, not consecrating your life, body, and soul to a God that wants to give your life divine significance. Now, I know at this point you are just overflowing with encouragement. But Judges 2 actually gets worse. He goes on to make sure that you know exactly what happens when God's mission is laid to the side. And comfort becomes the mission. And this is what happens. A people devoted to comfort create children that need to be converted. A people devoted to their own comfort create kids that need to be converted. It says in verse 10, after Joshua died, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. I mean, that is a huge sentence. In one generation, they did not know the Lord or what he had done. Their kids didn't know the Lord. When this generation laid aside God's mission and pursued their own comfort, they stopped telling the stories. They didn't remember their past. They didn't value what God had done. Their lives were no longer defined and governed by it. It was no longer the basis of it. And so the parents stopped telling their kids the stories of all that God had done, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob The stories of God's power in Egypt, his power at the Red Sea, those walls of Jericho tumbling down. They stopped telling their kids the stories of God's power and his promises for them. And so when God's mission was laid to the side, so were the very stories upon which that mission was built. They no longer told them because they no longer had a need for them. They had a different mission now. And so what happened? Their children grew up not knowing who they really were. For 400 years. Their children grew up not knowing who they really were. They grew up without any sense of their divine purpose or God's promises for them and to them. They grew up without any sense of their true identity Because they weren't told the stories that defined it. And so the children grew up not knowing their divinely given identity. They didn't know who they really were, so they didn't really know what they were supposed to do because they didn't really know their God. They were lost. But here's the thing. Their children still searched for identity and purpose. They still looked for a story to understand who they were. 
to give their life meaning. So their children started living by different stories. It says in verse 11 that they did evil in the sight of the Lord and started worshiping the gods of the Canaanites called Baal and Ashtaroth. I know that seems distant, but just replace them with money and sex. They started worshiping at the altar of money and sex. How so? Well, Israel didn't drive out the Canaanites, and they chose to live among the Canaanites who were a polytheistic people. And polytheistic cultures believe that each god has a power over a certain arena and aspect of life, but each god also has power over a certain geography or region. And so these kids grew up hearing the stories of the Canaanite gods who had power in their region. They were told about Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal was the storm god who provided rain and harvest, and Ashtaroth was his consort, the goddess of fertility and love. And when Israel settled into their new homeland, their lives changed. Why? Because now they were no longer a nomadic people. Now they were an agrarian people where their lives are now centered around the harvest. And so they needed the rains. And like any ancient agrarian family, they wanted the blessing of children to help work the fields and to make the family strong. And so who did they turn to for these things? They turned to the gods they were told about. The god of the rains and the goddess of fertility. They turned to Baal for the rains for abundance and blessing. And yet what stories did they really need to hear? They needed the story of the God who created all things by the word of his power. They needed the story of the God who created the heavens above and the earth below. They needed the story of the true storm God who flooded the earth. They needed the story of the God who wiped the floor with every God of Egypt and bankrupted their entire pantheon by showing the power that he has over every arena of which they claim to have power. Or the stories of a God who literally made it rain bread every day for 40 years in the wilderness where there is no rain. They also turned to Ashtaroth for fertility and children and blessing, engaged in all sorts of sexual destruction and brokenness because they wanted to have those babies. And yet, what stories did they really need to hear? What promises did they need to hear? They needed the story of the God who promised to make his people a multitude from the very beginning. Whose stars would, like, whose number would be like the stars. They needed the story of the real God of fertility who gave life and brought life from Sarah's dead womb. The story of the God who promised Israel in the wilderness that if they would listen to his voice, then whenever they came to the promised land, no mother would miscarry her babies and no woman would go barren. These are the stories they needed to hear. 
Stories of God's power and his promises that would define their lives. Stories they heard in the home. But they were never told these stories. And so their children ended up living by different ones. I know for some of you, this, this hits home in a really painful way. Your children have walked away from the faith. And that weighs heavy on your heart. It keeps you up at night. That makes it hard sometimes to lift your hand in praise. And you hear all of this and it just makes it sound like you are a failure. And all of that is because it is your fault. You tried, but you should have done more and you could have done better. Let me be clear. That is not what this passage is saying. This passage, yes, is talking to you like all of us. But it is not talking about you. It is not talking about parents that tried. This passage is talking about parents that didn't try. About parents where in Israel, in their complete failure and their unwillingness. He's not talking about you. And you can't forget that children make choices. You raise adults, not kids. And this passage does not tell the end of the story. There is a reason. There is a reason that when Jesus comes along, he tells stories about prodigal sons. He brings them home. Judges shows us It's telling us what happens when God's people lay aside God's mission and they pursue their own comfort. It's warning us. It wants us to see that the seeds of Israel's failure exist in our own hearts. Of how we can pursue comfort above all else and we lay aside that call to consecrate our lives, body and soul, to a living God. It's a warning against the ways that we can think that You know, God's mission is just out there somewhere off in the distance and disconnected from our lives. We know that temptation. We know the temptation of going home and thinking, this is my house. But Joshua challenges all of us. He connects the two. That God, yes, has given a mission for his people. And that mission is no different than what happens in your home. And we have to ask that question first. What is the mission of you as a person? What really is the mission of your marriage? What is the mission of your parenting and of your home? Or what else are we trying to see come alive in this world when we go out to it? God's mission for the world is no different than his mission for your home. And maybe you're sitting there and all of this just hits hard. It, it did me this week quite a bit. 
You realize that you've laid aside God's purposes in your life, in your home. That space between you and your spouse, you just don't invite Jesus into it. Maybe you realize that space between you and your kids, God's voice has been held out and held at a distance. And you feel stuck in that downward spiral of asking God for help when things get hard, but when things go kind of back to normal again, you go on radio silence with him, and you pick up that phone again when life gets hard and frustrating, because really, in your heart of hearts, you want comfort. It's okay to admit that. But it leaves you sitting there thinking, man, I could use a little bit of grace. (laughs) Where is Jesus in all this? Or really you think, what's the point of actually trying? What's the point of actually trying to offer my home, my marriage, my kids? One, it's a lot of work. But two, what's the point of trying whenever I am just going to fail over and over and over again? Where's the motivation where I'm just going to fail because I'm no better than the people in this story. Well, let's find Jesus. And we don't have to look far. He's actually in this passage. Like literally in this passage. Verse 1. The angel of the Lord came down and gathered the people. That's a terrible translation. The word angel is a misleading interpretation. That word at its core means messenger the messenger of the Lord. And if you notice the way he talks, he says, you did not obey my voice. Angels don't talk that way. God talks that way. It's the same language the Bible uses when it describes God himself coming down in the Old Testament to talk to his people. This is a pre-incarnate visitation from Jesus. And he tells them the hard news, he delivers the blow, and then he ascends. And maybe right there, that is exactly how you feel. Jesus comes down, he delivers the blow, and then he ascends and he leaves you all on your own. But the story does not end there. This visitation on this mountain points to another visitation on another mountain, the Mount of Olives, at the Great Commission, where Jesus, the second Joshua, gathered his people and he gave them a mission to go near and far and proclaim the glory of Christ for the life of the world. And just like Joshua, Jesus connects that mission in the world with the mission at home because he says to teach them everything that I have commanded you. It's not just, God's mission is not just evangelism. We're not just teaching them about something to believe. We are teaching them how to live. It's teaching them how to orient their life around divine purpose, divine meaning, and divine mission. But this time before he ascends, he says something different. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is your motivation, Christian, Jesus is with you. That is not a Hallmark card. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. 
Jesus is with you in ways that you couldn't comprehend. Jesus is with his people. He's with you in your home. He is with you in your marriage. He is with you in your parenting. He is with you in your failures. He is with you in your good days and in your bad days. Quit using your failures as a reason not to engage. Use the fact that Christ is with you as your reason to engage. He's with you when you work on your marriage and it still feels like it's pointless. He's with you when you do your best to raise your children and your kids and the faith and you feel like a failure. He's with you when you try to talk to your adult kids about the faith and it feels like it doesn't do any good. He is with you and he is working and he is inviting you not to do your own work, but to engage and commit yourself, your life, your home to his work and to keep putting one stumbling foot in front of the other because he is with you. He has chosen you. He has purpose for you, even when it doesn't feel like it. And he has purpose for us as a church. And all week I kept thinking about this generation of Israel and how they'd lost sight and what that meant. Because they really missed out. They missed out. They laid aside the opportunity to see something extraordinary. Why? Because they didn't recognize their place in the story. If they did, then they would have said, we, when they went home, they would have said, we are so close. After all these years, four centuries from Abraham, when those promises were given to now, we are almost there. We could be the generation that sees God's promises fulfilled. We could be the generation that works so that our kids might have a home in ways that none of our forefathers ever did. We could be the generation that sees God's promises realized and what incredible things might we see God do if we commit to it. How many more Red Seas will we encounter? How many more walls of Jericho will we see? But they didn't. They came so close, and yet they were so far away. And I think about us and how we have even better promises than they because Jesus is with us in a way that he was never with them. And he invites us to join him in what he is doing to get over the fact that we fail and to engage because he doesn't to commit ourselves together to his purposes in our homes and in our marriages and to bring the glory of Christ back into each of those arenas of life and to ask ourselves, what might we see when we do? One of the problems of comfort is that it smothers your imagination. It smothers your imagination for what God might do in you and through you and around you. It pretends as though your God did not rise from the dead. It tells you that the only thing that you should go to your God for is just to make your life better and how you want it to be. And yet Jesus comes and he says, I am making the cosmos new. Come and join me in that. I have purpose for you. I have purpose for your family. What might we see if we embrace that truth? What might we see in India? 
What walls might he tear down in Malawi? What revival might break out in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods? How many marriages might he heal? How many lives might he restore? How many prodigals might come home? We need to pray for what we can't imagine. We need to pray for what we can't accomplish. We need to ask God to do what we cannot do. We need to ask for his glory to be revealed among us so that we would stand amazed at what God has done when he reveals his power and his glory among a people that are hungry for it. So what does God want to do among us? I have no idea. None. But I certainly want to find out. And I know all of that comes down to how we answer the question, as for you and your house, whom will you serve? The glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that, we ask that you would do marvelous things. We ask that you would reveal your power and your glory among us. We ask that we would give up comfort and instead we would choose rest. We ask that we would rest in you and your purposes for us. We ask that you would increase our faith, that you walk among us. And we ask that you would make us a people devoted to your mission in our time and in our place and in our homes. We pray that our marriages, that you would breathe into them the sacrificial love of Christ again. We pray that you would fill that space between moms and dads and little ones, between babies and grown kids, that we would be parents that express the love and compassion of Christ and that you would bring all of our prodigals home. We ask that you would captivate us, give us a bigger imagination for what you might do and we would stop settling for so little. Help us to be reawakened to a God that wakes the dead, a God that raises the dead to life, a God that slays dragons, a God that parts seas, a God that will come and judge the living and the dead and make all things new. We ask that you would draw near to us as we come to your table and that you would feed us with the life that only you have. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.